Let's look at uh, John 5. We're going to pick up in verse 30 and go through 47 today. I want to read this and then I want to pray. So here's the scripture we're going to be unpacking today, starting in verse 30. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, speaking of John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He's moving first person here. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who does accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, then you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Man, that's a lot of truth there. It's a lot of tough passages, and uh, through lots of study, I think I can bring some direction, maybe, to some confusion here, and uh, just make Jesus famous. This is just Jesus making much of himself, and we should not expect anything less. We shouldn't want anything less. Let's pray, and we'll get to work. Jesus, uh, may our time here today be that of same purpose in John writing this as well as you sending Jesus is so that we would know you and we would not miss Jesus. Lord, be with the 650 plus people who've died in the Philippines over the last few hours because of a tropical storm. Lord, be with Pastor Jacob as he's very, very sick with pneumonia. Lord, be with all those who are sick and could not gather with us. Be with those who are sick that are with us. Lord, help us physically work through this season of sickness. But God, my most, the most important thing before us now is that we would hear your word. Not just with our ears audibly, but with our spirit spiritually. Would you speak to our heart and our soul? Would you open our eyes to see 
not just words on a page, but the one who the words on the page is pointing to. May we not miss you. Help us, Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray and ask these things because I know that it is only through you that that can happen because that is truly miraculous for the divine to touch us. So do this, please. Amen. Amen. All right. So before we, before uh, verse uh, 30, basically the, the, the conversation went something like the Jews are looking at Jesus and saying, so you're professing to be equal with God. And Jesus is essentially saying, yes. And they were just like, wow. And this guy, Jesus, was, was teaching um, and, and was living not according to Sabbath laws that they had created, okay? They had made the Sabbath miser- a miserable day, the most difficult day, the hardest day to live out of the seven the Pharisees have. And Jesus isn't living according to their traditions. They think he's a blasphemer. They think he's evil, and so through this conversation, unpacking the Sabbath and who Jesus is, they're like, so you think you're equal with God? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's the whole point. Like, you got it, right? But they didn't understand it in the light that they should have. It was a stumbling block and not a stepping stone, okay? All right, and then it's kind of where we pick up here. And then we have these hinge verses, 30 and 31, where he begins to talk in first person, opening up, 32 through 47. So let's look at these. As he summarizes basically all of chapter 5 up to this point, he says, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's essentially saying, I'm not acting independently. I'm way too connected to the Father to do that. As I'm told to do something, I do it. As I hear, I judge, I act. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What's that mean? doesn't mean what you think it means, at least what I thought it meant at first. He's basically saying, you aren't going to believe me just because I say it. You need more witnesses other than myself. You see, if all that Jesus has are his own claims, this is insufficient. That's why the prophets are there to point to Jesus. If he's just going off what he says, I could tell you that I'm God. There needs to be evidence to point this out, and he's knowing this. He's affirming the fact that there's more than enough prophecy. There's more than enough uh, 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 miraculous works and witnesses to the fact that he is God, and he's going to give them to them. So now the stage is set to prepare for these witnesses that he's going to bring that we just read about, these four witnesses. Deuteronomy 17 and 19 speaks of the fact that if you want to collaborate a truth, you have to bring at least two or three witnesses to do so. And then if they agree, then it must be true. Okay? This is the idea. Jesus doesn't bring two. He doesn't bring three. Jesus brings four. Because he wants them to know clearly that, and, and enforce the truth clearly that he is Christ, that he is deity, that he is God. And this idea of using witnesses was very central to how the legal system worked and how the, the proper legal procedure was to follow. So his witness are these four, and we're going to unpack them. John the Baptist, Christ's miracles, God's word, and the Old Testament. All right, let's look at verse 32 as we begin to unpack these four witnesses pertaining to Christ's deity. And this matters, so focus with me. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. 
you sent to John. This is the one who bears witness, the forerunner, the one who came out as a voice calling out in the wilderness, make way, you know, prepare the way for the, for the Lord. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. You sent to him. This refers back to John 1, 19 through 20, and he says this, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Jesus is. This was the point. They went, this John guy, he's, you know, we kind of like him a little bit. He's got a following. You know, he, he used the Old Testament. Let's go see what he's about. They sent these leaders over to say, you know, what are you about? And he's like, no, I'm not the Christ. Jesus is. It was John who said in verse 129, looking at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John's message. They sent to John and he bore witness to the truth. He declared Jesus is the Christ. All right? Unpacking more of this witness here. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. It means this. I'm not telling you about John the Baptist for my own good to remind me of who I am. I'm telling you of John the Baptist in order for you to know more of who I am. I know who I am, Jesus is saying. First John 129, or John 129, when, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it wasn't written so that I would be like, Oh, yeah, that's right. This is Jesus speaking. Oh, yeah, I am. Okay, yeah. It wasn't written for me to know these things. He said it was written for you to know these things about me. I, knew, I know who I am. I and the Father are one. I'm very clear in what I understand. It was written for, these things were spoken and written for you to hear so that you might be saved. His voice was the voice calling out in the wilderness, not so that I would know where to walk and where to go and, and what to say. It was so that you would hear and you would see me and you would be saved. That you would see that I am the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 35. He was, speaking of John, John the Baptist, not John the author. Kind of confusing here at the beginning. But it says was. See that? He was. This is pertaining to maybe he's already dead. Definitely that he's locked up in prison, but maybe even dead. Because it's past tense. Many theologians see this. And we'll see about his death in the future here in the next couple chapters. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, in the truth that he was bringing. This rejoice for a while, is, 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 you chose to enjoy his light, but for only a temporary moment. And we know what the stumbling block was for the Jews. John the Baptist preached repentance. He preached the fact that you must come to a point where you see that you in and of yourself are wrong and incapable of getting to God no matter how much Bible you memorize, no matter how good you are. And you must turn. Because they, uh, they understood repentance, the Jews did, as far as the Gentiles go. Like, yeah, they need to be like us. They must repent to be like us. Because we're in. Look at all we do. And John the Baptist came in and said, no, 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 no. Repent. There is a new kingdom. There is a new level of righteousness here. And you can't acquire it to get in this kingdom. You must repent to get in with God. 
No, no way. The Pharisees balked. They, they just said, no, this is not going to happen. So they listened for a little while until it got tough. And this, this lamp, he was a burning and shining lamp. This is a tribute to John, speaking of, of how he was used in God's plan. This is not phos, but luknos. It's two different Greek words. I don't use Greek a lot because it's confusing to a lot of people, and it really builds up pride in myself. But this is important, though, for us to understand. This phos is when God says, I am the light. I am the source. It is by my nature who I am. The word that's used here, he was a burning and shining lamp, is a different word, luknos, meaning little lamp or little light or reflector. So he was a burning and shining reflector of who Jesus Christ and who God is. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That's the fos. That's, that's the essence of his message. His gospel was about Jesus Christ, about God, the true light. So you kind of bask a little bit there in his truth, which is capital T, to understand his message here. This is the truth. It's not John's truth. He was a little light, but his message was about the big light. Okay? That's the point here. All right, his, he was a lamp that exuded this light, but he was not a light in and of himself. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of even John. For the works, this is speaking of Christ's entire ministry, his words, his works, his miracles, everything. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. You see the union there again. It's beautiful how tied he is with the Father, which they see as blasphemy. He sees as just him flexing his deity here. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, for crying out loud, you see this? This is the very works that I'm doing right now. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. It should point to you that I'm connected with God. John's testimony is good, but my own life and works are even better as a witness. You see, my life and works point to my deity, to me being God, the Messiah. You see this? Look at verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So we see John the Baptist, we see Christ's miracles, and now we see this of the voice, the word of God. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This word, this, the, God's word that I'm talking about as a third witness to Christ is not the Old Testament. That's what we're going to get with Moses on our fourth one. This is not speaking to Scripture. This is speaking to the still, quiet voice of God in our souls. This is, this is what... <clears throat> Uh, Paul uses in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
This isn't, this is the voice, this isn't the written word. This is referring to knowing the voice of God personally. And they did not know the voice of God certainly. They knew scripture. They had the first five books of the Bible memorized. So it's not that. The very life, the very word, the very breath of God was not in them. That inside, internal voice of God was not there. The external, the written word, was absorbed and memorized. But Christ is saying, hey, you might know all about it, okay? But it's not changing you at your core. And the life of God, the active word, is not in you. You see this? Is that confusing a little bit? Christ was pointing out that it's not enough just to memorize. I mean, there's certain cults that actually eat verses of Scripture, because they're wanting to ingest it. So they actually take scripture, write it down, cut it out, whatever, and they eat it physically. And this, I mean, that seems silly, right? But this is just as silly. Christ sees this and says, it's more than this. You don't have the word of God in you. You might have it memorized, but it's not alive in your soul. When it stops here, and it doesn't move to here and create different actions and words, the more we know, the more gracious, gracious we should be. The older we are as believers, and the more that we know, these Pharisees knew so much, it should evoke a greater graciousness and tenderness to people. The older we get in our faith, we should not get more judgmental off of how much we know. That proves that there's a disconnect. We should be all the more gracious with others who, who don't get it. But that doesn't happen because so often it just gets stuck here. We're just like these guys. We're just like these guys. And we must have the Holy Spirit, God himself, come and challenge us, convict us, and change us. Because we don't need more bitter Christians. The quota's met, okay? That's, we're done, all right? From this point forward, let's, let's be different about this. Let's be gracious. Let's be tender. Let's be the Jesus when the whore was brought out before everybody to be stoned. The Jesus who says, where are your accusers? Knowing that he was the only one that could accuse her. He was the only one that was better than her. Go and sin no more. What? Grace. That's what Nashville, Tennessee needs to see. Yeah, okay. Moving forward. Verse 39. Speaking to these Pharisees, these religious rulers... You literally are searching. You, you're in the middle of searching the scriptures. Now, this is the Old Testament here. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. A better word here is not and, but but. So you, you're searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jewish diligence in studying the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, was legendary. Literally, they had it memorized. It's hard to read Leviticus in a month, to read through it, much less spend years memorizing it. I mean, it's easy to, to memorize Ephesians, Hebrews, Romans, the Psalms, but to take the first five books and memorize it takes some hardcore diligence. And they, this was, 
this is how they did it. They, 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 they memorized it to a, to a, a fault. Because they knew it, but it wasn't changing them. It wasn't alive in them. There was a first century Jewish rabbi named Hillel who used to say this, and I quote here, the more study of the law, the more life. If a man has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. First century, highly influential Jewish rabbi. This is what they thought. Christ is teaching contrary to popular religious rule. However, Scripture, Galatians 3, throw that out there, teaches that such zeal for Scripture is misguided, for it alone cannot, indeed it is insufficient for gaining eternal life. It can't happen. Jesus is essentially saying, you're missing it all because you're missing me. And this is terribly sad. You see, all of Scripture is oriented towards Jesus Christ. Hear what Paul wrote years later, referring to the Jewish leaders. You ready for this? To the Jews. He wrote this concerning them. Brothers, this is Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They do not submit to God's righteousness. This is where religion, having religious systems, which we need, we need religion. We need to be religious in certain things, like bathing, right? We need to be religious there, okay, people? Add that to your list, all right? There needs, there needs to be some religious activity and frequency, like to do things habitually, it's a good thing to be kind. It's a good thing to look for opportunities to be nice. It's a good thing to read the Bible every day. It's a good thing to pray every day. But when that doing becomes, in essence, your salvation, that when you do it, you feel so good, but when you fail at it and you forget it or you don't have enough time to put towards it, you feel bad about yourself, that's when it has been elevated to that of a religion. You're not appeasing the gods because you're not doing good enough and you're not doing enough good things enough. That is chains of legalism and moralism. We must fight hard to discern where our good religious activities have become ultimate and we have entered into a new religion much like the Pharisees and have created based off of very the, the teachings of life, we base them here, just like the Pharisees, but we take them way out of bounds. We take them way too far. And we begin to create a line of what we see as righteousness. And oddly enough, it's a floating line that wherever we are, that's where it is at the time. Well, the, you know, yeah, this was the line, but the circumstance, I mean, after all, anyone... Okay, so it was right here's the new line. Oh, so-and-so's doing that? I can, I can start doing that too. Oh, they're not doing that. Oh, look, oh, we need to pray for them. They're not as good as me. We don't say these things necessarily, but we think them and we feel them. And this is what drives us. And my prayer is for me and for you to discern this and to see these things broken and that you respond out of love 
to Christ, not fear for failing, not fear of, oh my goodness, what will he think if I don't, but understanding that through the gospel and understanding what Christ actually did for you in his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and even his coming return, it is to present you holy and blameless, perfect. You don't need to add to that. Perfect. Because of that, let's do these things. But let's not do these things, these religious things, in order to gain that favor. We must see that favor is there. It's unconditional. There's not a moment when God's looking down at you and saying, I told you, that's it, two more times, and you're out. God is smiling at you. If you're in Christ, it's constant love. He looks at you the same way he looked at his son in John 1. This is my beloved Jeremy in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved Ben, Ross, Miles, Tom. This, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. Look, there's Lauren, my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Because we're in Christ, because our union with him, we're so tightly knit with him that through our association, his work for us, we've been, what the Bible considers, adopted. Fellow heirs, sons and daughters, partakers of the new covenant, there's hope. There's no fear there. There's no line to have to match up. Just respond. Follow Christ in obedience. Pursue being Christ-like in your mind and your actions because you've been loved and accepted and approved and adopted, not in order to be those things. Let's keep digging here. Regarding our own righteousness, I felt needed to pull out Acts 4.12 from Peter's sermon there where he says, there is salvation in no one else, no other person, no other work, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ. Echoing John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. It's him. It's not our works. It's not knowing enough Bible. It's not having the right theology. It's not following the right preachers on Twitter or following certain posts on Facebook or trying to come up with pithy sayings as often as you can. It's going to make you to a point where you, oh, you're saved now. It's only under the name of Christ that you're saved. Now we understand that. Now we really, really grasp that. Verse 41, Jesus moves on here. He continues here, actually. I do not receive glory or honor or human acclaim from people. You see, he knew their minds. He knew exactly what they were thinking. Remember John 2? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, that's where it stopped. It was superficial. They just saw his miracles and were like, oh. They didn't see him as God and say, wow. It was just what he could do. It was just kind of his magic stuff that they loved. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows their hearts. He knows. He must have known what they were thinking here. He must have known that they were saying, man, this guy wants us to honor him, to bow down to him as if he were God? Yeah, okay, sure. I'm a rabbi just like he is. I'm not going to bow down to him. 
He's like, no, no, I don't, I don't need your honor. What's he looking for? Look at verse 42. But I know that you do not have the what? The love of God within you. Jesus wants love from people. Then praise. Not praise without love. This love here is in response to being loved. It's not empty honor that's not prompted from an awareness of what Christ did where we understand personally that he died on the cross for my sins as my substitute resulting in my being made perfect before God. Like what Matt was talking about before about him being the propitiation, the wrath bearer, the wrath absorber for me. He took my punishment so there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To understand that and grasp that personally then that's when the love of God just begins to shine forth because we've, we've been given that, so now it's our response to give back. And see, this group here, they had love, for sure, but it was this self-love which caused them to reject God's gift of Jesus Christ. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And here's a prophetic, prophetic voice of Jesus here. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Since this time, it's been recorded that there's over 60 different messiahs that's coming to Jerusalem, been worshipped as messiah, and people even died for them. Certainly this was true. You're not going to receive me because I'm coming in the name of God. But if I came in the name of Jesus, you would accept me. But because I'm attaching a, a person to deity, you're not buying it. But you're not understanding that messiah has to be attached to deity or he's not the messiah. They're just not connecting it. You see, they're being deceived. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Look at this self-absorption here. Receiving glory from one another. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're literally, you're so caught up in seeking glory for and from each other and for yourselves but standing in front of you is the Messiah, and you're missing me. They were so busy, self-absorbed in their religious duties that they had no room for God's revelation of his gift of Jesus Christ. They didn't have the framework. They weren't even expecting. They really weren't even expecting him to be there because when he shows up, they can't receive him. They're so caught up in this knowing more and winning more arguments and knowing more scripture, so self-absorbed. It's easy to hate on that, but that's where we are. And I pray that you're not just pointing fingers everywhere else or thinking of anyone else. I pray that you're thinking of yourself. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Wow. This, it's, there's no way I'm not even going to attempt to put into words how powerful of an indictment this is. This is earth-shattering. This is shocking. This is the point where you either leave because you knew that you would do something irrational, or you grab a stick or a stone and do something irrational. This is where you just could not stand there. No longer could you be neutral. No longer could you contain yourself. 
this truth that Jesus just laid out there, this indictment, brought emotion. And you can't really see that here, but knowing the context and how big Moses was. You see, he was everything. Everything in their world revolved around Moses. He was their author, their hero, their everything. And yet, he's the, the one that we love is going to be the one that accuses us. Moses doesn't really catch me as something I would place my hope in. A big library with a lot of big books, having the right theology, looking the part, have a big following, be able to communicate effectively, have a lot of stuff and a lot of money. Moses's in my life. Those very things can and will be used against our own souls to accuse us. The very things that we're looking for for hope and salvation are going to disappoint us and fail us unless our hope is set on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's it. May we not get so tangled up in things or popularity or even the right theology that we fail to worship Jesus. That we fail, for me, in my religious library, that I fail to miss the point of why these books are written and what they're written about but instead just storing up knowledge, being able to quote, blah, 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 and miss the point. This is what they were doing as he unpacks more of their accuser, who is Moses. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses and his writings, you would believe me and my works, for he wrote of me. If you don't believe in me, you won't believe in Moses. You don't believe in Moses because Moses was writing and pointing to me. Imagine here, they spent their lives learning about all that Moses did and taught and how he acted and reacted. And then here, in this moment, face to face with this guy saying he's the Messiah, they hear these words that they've missed Moses' central teaching. It's not something on the peripheral. They missed the message of Moses. At its very core, it was Jesus and pointing to the Christ. And they missed it. They thought they knew it, but they didn't. This frightens me. May we read this and feel this, and may this motivate us to become more dependent on Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and not get out ahead of him. Because you see here, we could miss it. Verse 47, and concluding this passage here today. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, Jesus saw Moses as just, I mean, whatever Jesus says, Moses is there. I mean, they're just like side by side because it's all about Jesus. It all funnels down to Jesus. So they weren't contrary to, they were together with each other, their teachings. 
Moses was their savior in many ways, and it was the working to keep his law that made them righteous, or so they thought and so they taught. They profoundly failed to grasp the true essence of the scriptures. Standing before them is Jesus Christ saying, I am God. Standing before Jesus, who claims to be God, uses four different witnesses to point to the fact that he's God. They say, no, you're not. You're a blasphemer. Strong. The same conclusion is where we're at today. Jesus is either God, and you must give him your life and follow him, even just logically think through that, if he is God, set the pattern of your life according to him. Ask him to change your heart, if he's God. Or, he's a blasphemer. And if he's a blasphemer, let's all run out of here and never touch the word of God again. He's one of the two. He's, you can't remain neutral here. If he's God, follow him with everything. If he's a liar, why follow him at all? Those who are outside of Christ and those who aren't Christians and who know that you're kind of on this faith pursuit, hear these words. Believe that Christ is the Messiah, the very Son of God, and that his teachings are perfect and that his Father is good, consistently good. And that he is perfect. And that he does offer hope in this life and hope in the life to come. And live for him. Embrace Christ as Messiah. And for those who are outside of Christ, please see that we so often get caught up in a preacher or a style of worship or a theology or a spiritual gift or a spiritual habit and a routine. In this, let's not miss Jesus. Stay in love with Jesus. The longer you go at being a Christian, may you be more dependent and humble as your sin and the awareness of who you are grows larger. And as the perspective of who Jesus is and what his death says about your sin, and may that just cause you to humbly bow down before him and worship him. Because you have great sin. But you have a greater Savior. He is. This morning, in my time of study, I was getting to the conclusion here. And I don't do this often, okay? But I literally wept. I'm talking like shaking, like convulsing and, and crying. Heavy tears. I mean, just flooding, dripping all over my Bible and commentaries. Soaking every, I'm, I'm telling you, it was a slobby mess. I didn't know why I was crying. I, I just kept saying, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> I don't know why I'm being emotional right now. And I think that that was a gift to point to our greatest need as Christians. So often, I mean, I got to the conclusion of this sermon. And God broke through to me. And I believe, even standing here now and saying this, I'm putting this together for the first time. 
Because I didn't know why I was crying. But I believe he broke me this morning to point out how many times we can go to the word of God and not be moved. And just look at it and say, okay, I'm going to live my life however. And I believe without trying to manufacture anything, without trying to pursue brokenness, anything like that, that Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit in that little room over there just shattered me. To say, Jeremy, this is all I'm looking for. You don't have to be the best preacher. You don't have to, be, you don't have to put together the best sermon. Just a broken and a contrite heart I will not despise. That's what I'm looking for. Worship me in spirit and truth, not perfection. Run after me. That's all. And I pray that we as Christians particularly would feel that today. That we wouldn't get so caught up in doing all these things. And singing. And these things are wonderful. Wonderful. But may we not miss Jesus. I mean, what a... What a I mean, this wasn't even put together this way, but I mean, what a significant sermon, even in pertaining to Christmas. I mean, look at it this way. Is it just something that we're going to add on to our Christmas routine and read through Matthew or Luke and read the, the story of Christmas because that's what you do on Christmas? Or is it because the fact that God put on human flesh is the only source of your hope and strength and joy there's no point in ever, ever, ever smiling were it not for Luke and the story that he brings about Jesus or the writings of Matthew and the truth that's there. This is why we read, and it's not just on Christmas. We can't get over what Jesus Christ has done. It's not an add-on. It's not something we do out of habit. Read the Christmas story on Christmas Day, and may it be from a heart that feels that you have been rescued only because a God-man put on a human suit and came and rescued you. That's the point. Let's pray together and ask God to continue to work in our hearts and reveal this stuff and save us from our self-absorption and self-salvation, okay? Jesus, Lord, thank you for the fact that this is unbelievably <laughs> believable that this is true, that you have, in fact, come to earth to give us hope. May we not place our hope on anything else. May we see how quickly our folly is to run after the pursuits similar to the Pharisees. May you convict us. God, save us from more Pharisees in Nashville. Change us from being those, those Pharisees in Nashville. God, break our hearts. L revive in us a knowledge of why we do what we do. So that it's not just a routine. It becomes earnestly and sincerely worship. In every way. In spirit and in truth. And God, for those who are outside of you this morning and who do not understand how truly good you are and how truly wonderful you are, would they rest in this tension of considering you as you present yourself here, a blasphemer, crazy, lunatic, liar, or the Messiah of the world? 
would they consider that? Would you use that to pry deep within their soul and remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh for their joy now and and throughout eternity and for your own glory, to the glory of your wondrous grace? Do these things in Christ's name. Amen.